I'm Carrie. And I'm Amy, and you are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover. This is a show where two friends chat about books and reading with another book lover. We find book lovers everywhere, and talking about books is one of our favorite things to do besides, for me, having the whole house to myself after 23 years of kids. Yes, I am an empty nester, almost. It's so quiet. I love it. Until I don't. (laughs) Because, you know, sometimes it's too quiet after you've had 23 years of kids around. I I wouldn't know. I'm not there yet. (laughs) We may be a little biased here on the perks, but we think reading people are the coolest people. This week's episode is a nod to back to school season when teachers can get books into the hands of kids after a summer of free days, endless video games, and probably too many popsicles. We are joined by Melissa Hart from Eugene, Oregon. She is the author of two memoirs, a middle grade book, and most recently, a great resource for teachers, librarians, and parents called Better With Books, 500 Diverse Books to Ignite Empathy and Encourage Self-Acceptance in Tweens and Teens. When Melissa's tween daughter was in elementary school, she dealt with anxiety and depression, and Melissa found a way to help her through reading targeted books together, a practice called bibliotherapy, which some studies suggest is effective in the treatment of some forms of depression. But the list of books in Better With Books can also help a young person develop empathy and be more accepting of others who have different experiences from their own, such as individuals with physical disabilities, mental health struggles, body image issues, and students from different religious backgrounds. But first... So Carrie, you have given me some of the treasures from your garden this summer, In fact, you gave me four cucumbers the other day from your garden, and I've already eaten almost all of them. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. Yep. I have used them in salads. And actually, I like your cucumbers because they're kind of small. Yes. And when you slice them, they're like the nice little small round size. They're, yes. so they're like perfect. And I've decided that maybe Carrie cucumbers are my favorite cucumbers. But I also made a gazpacho for my father-in-law uh, today because he loves gazpacho. For years when my mother-in-law would make it for him, but my mother-in-law now has dementia and my father-in-law can't find the recipe. And so I made him some gazpacho today with tomatoes from the farmer's market and cucumbers from your garden. And it was very nice. Oh, that's nice. Okay. We've already discussed how I don't like extra. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of that way about vegetables because I sort of like my vegetables small. Okay. So this summer for the first time ever in my whole entire life, I grew zucchini, squash, tomatoes, cucumbers, And I have peppers that I'm still working on. And I do not like any of them to get really huge. Now, I have learned that sometimes vegetables like to hide. And so sometimes you don't see them for several days. And so they accidentally get a little extra, you know, a little too big. (laughs) But here's the thing. So I make zucchini bread. And sometimes when I make cornbread, I will take yellow squash and, you know, shred it and put it in my cornbread recipe. The problem is if you let them get too big, then they become really seedy. Yeah. And zucchinis, you shouldn't let them get too big. Well, they're super watery for one thing, the bigger they get. They just don't have as good a flavor. All of the quote unquote gardeners or farmers, like vegetable people that I have known in my life have been men. And men, I don't know, I think it's a penis thing, but they're always like, bigger, bigger, bigger. (laughs) And I don't get that. They don't all have to be these big, the size of horse donks you know they like (laughs) these zucchinis can be small and these cucumbers can be small and very dainty and they're just Uh, as good you know we'll just say that carrie is the spokeswoman for miniature vegetables again i'm minimalist i am minimalist in like a lot of things i don't like extra and so small vegetables little vegetables. vegetables little vegetables they do the job The other thing that I wanted to talk to you about is, have you seen this whole thing about Jeopardy? Yes. So a few weeks ago, we had Brooke Lauren Davis on, and she's a Jeopardy lover. And the question that we asked her was, who was she hoping to be the replacement? And so we chatted a little bit. We all decided LeVar Burton would be like the perfect new host. And what did they do a week later but announce that the guy who was the executive producer of the show had named himself 
the host. And I think probably there was like a collective groan among everybody, basically. And and he stepped down because of some unfortunate things that he has said in the past, which I haven't actually read. But all I'm saying is LeVar still has a chance. You know, here's the thing, though. <laughs> I cannot claim to have made this up. I saw it going around on Twitter. But I, I think a lot of the people who are team LeVar Burton at this point are so frustrated by that whole thing and how it went down that they're like, you know what, LeVar Burton, even if they ask him, he shouldn't even do it and he should go become a professor at a historically black college. You know, I'm kind of with that too. I'm like, you know what, you didn't want him and you put this dude in, I would say, nope, can't have me anymore. So He's too good for Jeopardy. He is too good for Jeopardy. Uh, well, yeah. and the only reason I'm really talking about this is because we talked to Brooke Lauren Davis about it. And also because LeVar Burton was a part of so many of our reading childhoods Rainbow. with reading Rainbow, which connects back to reading. And so that's why I'm talking about it. But you know what? Him going to a historically black college and hey, he could he could be a professor. He could be a dean. Maybe he could be the president of one. That would be awesome. Yeah. I'm just team go LeVar Burton. How about that? I'm with you on that. I think it's time that we talk to Melissa. What do you think? I think we should do it. Melissa, thank you so much for being our guest today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Tell us and and our listeners just a little bit about you. Sure. I live in Eugene, Oregon. We are sort of Portland's little sister two hours south, but we're hip too. (laughs) I grew up kind of in two places, in Los Angeles and then in Oxnard, California, down in Southern California. So were you a big reader as a child? I was. I read constantly. Our public library stood right next to my grammar school. So every day when class was over, I'd walk over to the library and check out a book and read it at home that afternoon and do it all again the next day and sometimes twice on Saturdays and Sundays. Oh, wow. My mother worked for a time as a book reviewer for a newspaper in Oxnard. And I would open the front door to find boxes of brand new kids books on the porch This was the early 1980s, the era of the so-called problem novel in kid literature. Oh. (laughs) And I read them all. I mean, sometimes she would get historical kid literature as well, and I would just read it all. And I think those boxes of books are the reason that I'm a writer. So I have to ask, what's the problem novel? I'm not oh, familiar with oh. I'm not familiar with that term. What does that mean? <laughs> the problem novel, I think in Kid Lit in the 1980s, referred to issue-driven books. Let's see, The Pinballs by Betsy Ayers is a really good example. The novel is structured around foster kids living in a foster home and the problem of being in foster care. And every single chapter is about the problem of being in foster care. There was a book called What Goes Up Must Come Down. I don't think you could get this book published these days, but that was a middle grade novel about a girl living in a high rise in New York City. And her mother was obese and wouldn't come down several flights of stairs to go outside. And that was the premise of this book. So the problem was what the book was focused on. When you read now, what kind of things do you like to read? Oh, I do make time for reading every day. Um, Sometimes that's at three in the morning by (laughs) headlamp, and that's fine. (laughs) Honestly, I prefer these days to read literary fiction by women and particularly women of color with vastly different experiences than my own. And then I also read a lot of creative nonfiction. Oddly, (laughs) I'm no longer a fan of memoir, but I do love personal essays, especially when they teach me something about science or nature or history or social justice or something like that. Oh, well, you're in good company because those are types of books that we like as well. In fact, I think, Carrie, how many have you listened to this summer? A a bunch. 
when we think about readers, we kind of assume that being able to put yourself in another person's story makes you more empathetic. And your book, the one we're going to talk primarily about is called Better With Books. And that actually quantifies that in terms of finding books that help improve the empathy of tweens and teens. So I'm curious, what made you decide this book needed to be written? That is such a good question. So I wrote this book after I spent a couple of years homeschooling my daughter. I pulled her out of the classroom after she began to exhibit serious anxiety and depression. She's adopted from the foster care system here in Oregon. She's black biracial, she has ADHD, and all of these elements in her life were really conspiring to cause her some mental health issues. So I designed a literature-based curriculum for her during her third and fourth grade years, and I chose novels and memoir that reflected and affirmed her experiences. We would read a book a month out loud together, and then we would do all of these cross-curricular activities, tying in the story with art and history and film and field trips and social studies and things like that. And I realized over time that reading books with her, I'm thinking about Jewel Parker Rhodes' Sugar and Kate DiCamillo's Rainy Nightingale and Catherine Patterson's The Great Gilly Hopkins, also about a girl from foster care. These books gave us incredible talking points about race and dysfunctional families and foster care and adoption, etc. And the more my kid and I read and talked and studied, the happier and more confident she became. I started thinking about books as bibliotherapy, mm -hmm. as a way to really build up kids' self-confidence and self-esteem, as well as building empathy for, for other people. And I feel like kids deal with a lot of self-hatred, especially as they move into the middle school years. Suddenly, so many of them feel like they're not good enough, they're too different, they don't measure up. I remember this from my own middle school. <laughs> At the same time though, now we have this flood of middle grade and young adult novels that are really celebrating diversity and individuality. And that fact combined with the studies that show a correlation between reading and increased empathy and reading and decreased anxiety and depression, that made me want to take a deep dive into children's and young adult literature to figure out who was writing what and how these novels are affecting kids' perceptions of themselves and others. And then I wanted to share this with as many adult caregivers and kids as possible. I just wanted to spread this joy. So in your book, Better With Books, you feature over 500 middle and high school books about a variety of different topics. So when you set out to write it, had you already read a lot of the books that you put in your book? Or did you specifically decide to research and read books for this project? I had read maybe... 20 titles when I was homeschooling my daughter. And most of those were middle school, young middle school. And so I ended up doing a great deal of research and nonstop reading for a year. I would research on the websites and blogs for School Library Journal and Publishers Weekly and other review sites to see who was publishing what. And yes, I read constantly and I read with a pen in one hand and a highlighter in the other and marked up all of those books. And it was just a thrilling time. How did you go about finding the books that went on your list? Like, did you ask other educators for suggestions? Did you ask teens for their suggestions? How did you gather these books? I think I was pretty obnoxious in the community of Eugene for <laughs> quite some time. <laughs> You know, probably the librarians, when they saw me walking in, turned and hid because I grilled them incessantly in the kids and young adults section for months and months. Actually, it is a great way to make friends with librarians. Now I'm friends with a bunch of them. But I would interview them incessantly about what they themselves were excited about. I guess this is a good place to say that I was focusing on contemporary kid lit and 
not speculative. So there are very, very few science fiction fantasy books in Better With Books. That's just the way it worked out because of the categories that I was putting books into. But I also looked at lists put out by the American Library Association and the nonprofit We Need Diverse Books was absolutely invaluable in providing reading lists like Brown Bookshelf and ALA's Rainbow Reading Lists and the website Disability in Kid Lit. And then, of course, I talked with my kids' gymnastics coaches and her dance teachers and other <laughs> parents and therapists and my kids' friends. And I did a ton of Google searches. And Amazon has that feature where you can pull up a title and you can scroll down and Amazon will say, other people enjoyed this book as well. <laughs> so I would go down the Amazon rabbit hole for hours Oh my and hours. goodness. Yes, you could spend days, weeks doing that oh. with every book. And if it would give you more suggestions than looking up that, oh my goodness. <laughs> it's making me a little bit anxious to think about it. <laughs> but it was my job. It, I got paid to do it. It was fantastic. <laughs> and in the end, I only ended up including books published in the last decade. So in the case of Better With Books, these were novels and memoirs published between 2009 and 2019, I swear if I hadn't had that parameter, I'd probably still be researching. <laughs> I guess you really did have to give yourself parameters. I otherwise. So speaking of the categories, how did you go about selecting the categories of the books you would feature? I had the most wonderful editor at Sasquatch up in Seattle for this book, Susan Roxborough, and I worked together to come up with the categories that we thought kids and their caregivers might need the most. And we included every category we could think of. I remember the book, it was just about to go to print. And I think she called me and said, Melissa, we don't have a category for body image. Mm. And we thought, oh, we have to include that. Body image is such a big deal to middle graders and young adult readers, and there are so many excellent novels about it. So we added that one last minute, which meant I had to really quickly read another 30 books. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but I'm curious to know whether we missed any categories. Um, in reading through it, did you feel like, oh, but where's this category? No. I felt like looking through it that you covered everything. I mean, there's immigration, there's learning challenges. I love that you had a category about nature and environmentalism. Yes, that one really spoke to me. Yeah. Um, physical disabilities, poverty and homelessness. I mean, adoption and foster care. I really felt like you covered the gamut. But then I thought, well, you know, there may be things that I didn't think of that you were like, well, you know, there might be some books that maybe there weren't the breadth of books to make an entire category out of it. I can't think of any. We really just packed as many categories in as possible. Was your goal to pick a certain number of books for, because the way the book is set up, in each category you have books for preteens and then also books for older teens and young adults. So right. did you ever read books that once you read them, you're like, no, I'm that's not one I'm going to pick. I guess my question is, in terms of like curating the list, did that ever happen? Oh my goodness, yes. You're not going to make me reveal those titles. No, no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there were a couple that didn't make the cut. I was reading always with my young reader in mind, what would hold her attention the most and the longest. And so I read for the most compelling books possible and also the books that handled the various issues, social issues, with respect and sensitivity and empathy. So if I had to cut a book out of my list, it was usually because I didn't find the story as compelling as five others on the same topic. When I was reading through your book, one of the things I thought about is I mean, I loved full-time teaching in terms of being with the students, but I had so little time to actually read books and discover books that my students might enjoy. Like I spent all of my time 
you know, my seven hours at school. And then when I was at home, I was planning lessons or grading. And so my guess, I could be wrong, but my guess is that a lot of teachers experience this, right? They just don't have time unless they try to squeeze it in during winter break or summer break to really immerse themselves in books. So as far as you being a teacher, did you have that experience? And was that something that you were thinking about when you were writing and and putting together better with books as far as making it helpful for teachers? Oh, I'm, I'm having flashbacks to when I taught third grade and I didn't have time to sleep, much less read. And I couldn't even listen to audiobooks on my commute. Like I could just barely manage pop rock on the radio. I was so tired. My eye didn't stop twitching for a year. <laughs> I feel really lucky now because I teach creative writing to master students at Southern New Hampshire University. But I watch my daughter's teachers and I see that same endless devotion. I mean, she had a teacher the last couple of years who would stay up late to meditate on each child in the classroom and what they needed most in terms of curriculum and resources and her attention. I see that over and over. I'm surrounded by teachers where I live and I really did want to create a resource that was beautifully and simply organized and easy to reference in a minute or less. And I worked with Susan, my editor, so that thanks to the table of contents and the index, a teacher or any other caregiver who has a biracial student dealing with racism and dyslexia can almost instantly find a novel or a memoir that will speak to that student. And that's why I wrote a pithy two-sentence description of each of the 500 books so that any reader can quickly and easily scan and choose for a kid what I hope will be the perfect book. Kind of the elephant in the room is that some parents have prejudices or stereotypes about kids or books in some of the categories that are in your book. So whether that's immigration or religion or LGBTQ+. So was that something that you thought about when you were putting the book together? And if so, how can a teacher, if they use that book, navigate that minefield where maybe a student is asking or interested, but the teacher might not be certain how the parents would react? This is such an important question and such an important answer. So (laughs) this book, Better With Books, is written in direct response to those parents. I grew up in the 1980s in Los Angeles with two moms and an older brother who was gay and a younger brother who had Down syndrome. And we all experienced our share of bigotry. I thought about this a lot when I chose novels that I felt would help young readers develop empathy for marginalized demographics. I don't know how teachers across the country can best navigate that minefield because there are so many elements at play. Perhaps the teacher wants to introduce all of these books, but the school board pushes back or the PTA pushes back, or perhaps the parents want these books in the classroom, but the teacher doesn't. It just depends on each individual classroom. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've been thinking about this and maybe people can just defer to better with books. Teachers can just defer to my book if they get any parental pushback on their reading choices and say, hey, I'm just the messenger. If you want to be mad at someone for giving your kid a book, be mad at this chick, Melissa Hart. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? I just feel like (laughs) teachers are incredibly brave human beings, ditto librarians and child therapists and any other professional who works with young people. And I agree that suggesting a potentially controversial book can feel like stepping into a minefield, but it can also literally save a kid's life. Right. And I just want to applaud the courage of educators who stand up to that bigotry and get these books into the hands of the readers who need them the most. I think that 
because of some of the students I work with, and I understand, I mean, I want to protect my kids. Right now, it's mostly germs. But I have always felt like reading a book is the safest way to expose children to the world. Because it's real, but there's a limit to what they can imagine when they're children. And so I feel like books are the safest way for my kids to learn about some of the terrible things that can happen in the world or the things, the complexities that the world presents to them. And I see parents who want to, even their high schoolers, they want to shelter them. I teach the classics and we read The Grapes of Wrath. Uh And I had a parent who had a lot of trouble with the Grapes of Wrath. And I'm like, it won the Nobel Prize, (laughs) (laughs) you know? So it it can be very difficult, like you Mm -hmm. said. I I wish at the time I had had a Melissa Hart book to You know, no, I'll take the fall. I am happy to be the scapegoat. (laughs) So I'm wondering how you are wanting your readers to use your book. Are you thinking that parents will use your book to choose some books, maybe to counterbalance some other books that they're reading at school? Or what were you envisioning the way people should use it? Right. Well, I was writing for so many different demographics. I think first and foremost, quite honestly, I was writing for middle schoolers and high schoolers who need something to read that affirms their life experiences. And so I wanted to make these descriptions of 500 books quick and punchy and exciting and compelling so that they could maybe they're having an issue with body image or an issue with ADHD. They could go to those chapters, quickly skim and find the perfect book. But I also wrote this book for parents and grandparents and other caregivers who are interested in this idea of bibliotherapy, the idea that a book can act as a therapeutic tool. And I wrote it for librarians. I have received the most wonderful responses from librarians who use this as a reference book when they're choosing books for the library, when they're choosing books for the young people who come in, when they're choosing books for parents who come and say, I have no clue, what should my kid read? Mm. And then also it's been adopted by so many child and marriage family therapists who use it to sort of prescribe books, again, as a therapeutic tool. And so this is what I envisioned. And I'm thrilled that it's getting into all of these different demographics and that they're using it in this way. Yeah, I love the idea of using it as bibliotherapy. I mean, I definitely, uh, I think that that can be strong medicine right there. Although I have to say, (laughs) reading it myself, I am so disappointed. I always think of myself as I'm like, oh, I'm such a well-read person. (laughs) I have read like five books in this whole thing. (laughs) I really need to like reconfigure my whole life now because there's just so many books that I wasn't aware of. And so it is a book that I am going to be using just to guide my own personal reading because, you know, I have middle school and teenagers myself that I parent, but I'm also with middle schoolers and high schoolers a lot. And I want to know what they're reading and see books that they might be reading and go, oh yeah, I've read. I mean, just in terms of relating to students, it can be a great way if, if they're reading something and you see it and you're like, oh, I read that. That was so good. That's a connection point too. It is. And it's a common language and a common story that just blows conversations wide open. Are there two or three books that you added to your list that you especially love to recommend to people? Now, is that a fair question? (laughs) 500? No, probably not. I can tell you about a few that I absolutely adore and I keep them on the shelf and they're going to be a special treat, a special reward after I write my next book. I loved... Robin Benway's young adult novel, Far From the Tree. Oh, I did too. I did too. Our book club read it. And normally I don't love happy endings. Uh (laughs) You know, like I'm just not that type of person. And that book, I was like, I love this. Yeah. Talk about it. Talk about it. Because I love it. That book was phenomenal. It's sensitive and nuanced portrayal of 
adoption and foster care and hmm, implicit bias and racism in adoption and foster care and teen pregnancy and the importance of sibling bonds. I just thought it was brilliant. And then, I mean, if you're going to make me pick, I also really loved Carrie Mack's 10 Things I Can See From Here, which is a, a young adult novel about a lesbian teen dealing with a dysfunctional family and extreme anxiety. And then I found this special treat, Eric Gansworth's audiobook version of his middle grade novel, If I Ever Get Out of Here, which is about two boys living on the Tuscarora Indian Reservation in 1975. And it's, it's just rich with all these 1975 pop culture references. He reads it so beautifully. It's witty, it's droll. And, and I have to say, I didn't get the same thing out of it when I read it. You have to listen to that one. And then finally, I have to just mention Kate D. Camillo's incredible illustrated middle grade novel, Flora and Ulysses, which is a droll, poignant look at the repercussions of divorce. And one of the main characters is a squirrel who's been sucked <laughs> up into a lawnmower and emerges with superpowers. So I want to talk to you a little bit about a middle grade book that you wrote, Avenging the Owl. And you wrote that several years before Better With Books was published. So when you were writing that book, were you thinking about many of the elements that you value in books when you were writing your own book? I was thinking about Oregon. <laughs> when I wrote Avenging the Owl, it really is my love story to Oregon. I moved here when I turned 30 after a lifetime of living in hot, dry Southern California. And I had never seen so much water. There were lakes, there were rivers, there were creeks, there were mountains, there was snow. I was just absolutely in love with this state. I started volunteering as an environmental educator for kids, a position which required me to teach environmental education in a full raccoon costume, complete with the head. <laughs> <laughs> but before I could do that, I had to take hours and hours of classes to learn about the region's flora and fauna. And then I also spent my free time hiking and biking and kayaking and training permanently injured birds of prey to do educational presentations at our local Raptor Center. So while I was there, maybe my eighth year of volunteering at the Raptor Center, a high school boy showed up and he had to do mandatory volunteer hours at the center, but he loathed raptors and he was terrified of their beaks and talons. I do think you need to have a healthy regard for how sharp those are, but he was <laughs> terrified. And you know, so many novels start with the question, what if? And I watched this kid and I thought, what if this kid who hates owls suddenly finds himself in the position of defending one from somebody who wants to kill it? So when I wrote the book, I was thinking a lot about that what if. And I was also thinking about how a kid developing a passion for something like raptors or my kid who takes 13 dance classes a week, kids who develop a passion and follow their bliss early on in life, it really, I think, helps them to avoid this crippling anxiety and depression. And it grounds them no matter what crisis their parents might be going through. The main character in Avenging the Owl has parents who are both going through a big crisis. Mm. I was also thinking a lot about my little brother who has Down syndrome and how I had never read a middle grade novel with a character who has this particular disability. And I wanted to portray Eric, this character, like my brother, who is smart and opinionated and witty and fiercely loyal and also has perfected his karate kick. So you don't want to get in his way. <laughs> I was also, and this is embarrassing because most people don't catch these references. I was also maybe just the tiniest bit obsessed with the 1976 Star Wars when I was writing Avenging the Owl. And so there are many, many references to that particular Star Wars and characters and themes and tropes in Avenging the Owl. But 
unless you're reading closely, apparently you oh. might miss them. <laughs> Well, I see. And now I'm definitely putting your book on my to read list. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I, I tried not to be too obvious, but I think I might have been too subtle in places. <laughs> <laughs> but come on, the protagonist's name is Solo Han. <laughs> As an educator yourself, and obviously a great fan of middle grade and in teen young adult literature. How was it writing your own middle grade book? I loved it. I think initially when I started to write it, I was very earnest and I thought I had to be. I was a little bit preachy and I had some really good beta readers who pointed that out. And then I remembered, wait a minute, Melissa, you have a good sense of humor and you can write with a sense of humor and kids will be so grateful. I think I had also discovered Chris Crutcher, the humorous middle grade novelist up in Spokane, Washington at the time. And so once I was able to get into a rhythm where I felt like I could write with both poignancy and humor, I had a much better time. And then <laughs> integrating the Star Wars references and this wealth of knowledge that I had about birds of prey and rehabilitating birds of prey, injured and orphaned raptors. I loved packing all that in, in a way that wasn't didactic, I hope, in a way that inspired and taught kids. And, you know, owls are just cool. And I got to spend an entire year writing about them when I wrote Avenging the Owls. So it was a great experience. Well, let's talk about the owls and the raptors a little bit, because I currently am about two thirds of the way through your memoir, Wild Within, How Rescuing Owls Inspired a Family. You have written two memoirs in your lifetime. I'm really enjoying Wild Within. It's all about meeting your husband, working in the Raptor Rehabilitation Center, and deciding to adopt a child. And actually, it's so funny. I'm only two-thirds of the way through, so it was a little bit of a spoiler to me for you to tell me that you adopted her from the foster care system. Oh. Because at the point I'm at now, I still think it might be a Vietnamese boy. But... Oh. <laughs> I just spoiled my own memoir. Anyway, I wanted you to talk just a little bit about how nature, the birds of prey, and moving to the Pacific Northwest made such an impact on you that you wrote two books about it. Yeah. Um, so I'm so sorry I just spoiled my own memoir. Oh, I'm teasing you. I'm teasing you. That's awesome. Growing up in Los Angeles, I craved nature so much that I would sit on my tiny front lawn and watch the starlings bathing in the gutter like I was Jane Goodall in Gombe watching chimpanzees. That was all the nature we had, plus this tiny little vegetable and flower garden that I grew. And I had to grow it vertically because there was so little backyard that I had to learn how to grow things up our stucco wall, oh, this wow. horrible pink stucco wall. And then later I went to college at UC Santa Barbara, which was, you know, had mountains and trees and the ocean. And I got into hiking and cycling and learned about the animals and plants in that region and was just so happy. But again, Oregon with its water and its mountains and its seasons really did blow my mind. When I moved here, I didn't even know what a raptor was. And progressively, I spent years learning about and training owls. I don't do that anymore, but I'm always learning about the different plants and animals in my state. The weirder, the better. I can't imagine walking around and not knowing about the natural world around me. I'm just a bit obsessed. <laughs> well, it is time for us to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Melissa Hart and with Carrie. Carrie, what are you going to tell me about today? So, you know, we do our episodes kind of out of order. We record them and then we schedule them. So I have probably talked about the fact that I started rereading Dune in preparation for the new film that's coming out, I think in October. I finished Dune and, you know, most of the time we're reading new things, things that we've never read before. And we talk about those on the show. But 
this was a reread and it's been about 20 years since I read the book the first time. And what I realized this time that I did not pick up on is that Dune is kind of a YA book. The main character, Paul Atreides in the story is only like 15. And so I really looked at it differently this time because 20 years ago, I wasn't a parent. And so now I'm reading this as an older person who has teenagers. And I think like when I read it the first time I saw him as an adult, I didn't pick up on the fact of how young he was. And so now I read it and I'm like, wow, he's just a kid. So the background of this is that it's set 10,000 years into the future and people can travel from planet to planet. And Paul's father is a Duke and he is sent to this planet that is just mostly desert. And his father is killed and Paul and his mother escape. And she has been trained in this religion and she's given him some of her training. I mean, it's kind of a complicated story to try to sum up, but they are sort of taken in by this indigenous population of people called the Fremen. And it is about Paul becoming the person that he is destined to become. And he is able to see time like all the things that could happen. And so reading it this time, I really, I guess I really felt the weight of what he is experiencing because he is only a teenager. Mm -hmm. And yet he's dealing with this issue of revenge because his father was killed. He has a love interest, but then he's going to have to marry. So it's, we think about kings and the monarchy, you know, where they didn't marry for love. They married for strategy and, and political ties. And so, you know, there's a lot of complications with him. So I looked at him differently and looking at him in this way makes me think that Timothy Chalamet is going to be perfect character because he looks so young and is so young. So I think he's going to be a really good Paul Atreides in the film. I'm debating whether to read the second book. I'll probably take a little break, but then maybe later this year, read the second book. I don't reread very many books, but sometimes mm -hmm. when I do, especially if it was a book that when I read it the first time, I really, really liked it. That when I read it the second time, it it doesn't always live up to the way I remember it. So did you feel like this one lived up to your expectations of the first time that you read I it? I liked it more. Oh, good. I actually liked okay. it more. Yeah. And, you know, and I was thinking about this, actually, even before you and I had talked about it, I'm starting to think that you really don't know a book until you've read it twice. Mm-hmm. I mean, and some of that can change. Like Jane Eyre, and I've talked about this, Jane Eyre is a book that I reread at least every decade. And every single decade, I have gotten something completely different out of it. And the first time is kind of getting the story. You know, like what's the basic plot? And I don't always notice motifs and symbols and, and those kind of deeper things. And then the second reading, I just find that I've, I notice things. It, the book hasn't changed, right? The book is still the same book. So I've changed in some way that makes me notice things that I didn't notice before. So yeah, actually the first time I read it on Goodreads, I had only given it three stars and this time I gave it four stars. Well, Melissa, what have you been reading? Oh, so many, so many things. My nightstand is a travesty. <laughs> what you just said about reading a book twice to really understand it completely resonated. I'm in the middle of rereading Richard Powers, The Overstory, and I love that book so much. <laughs> I can't believe what this man has done in this novel. I told you at the very beginning, I usually read novels by women and particularly women of color. I've made an exception for the overstory because it's all about trees mm. and it's, it's this sweeping, epic integrating the lives of different trees with the lives of different people over centuries and it's just magnificent the characterization and the weaving in of different stories and all that 
he imparts about trees and their relationships with one another. And it is just fantastic. And that is a book that I read a couple years ago and then saved as a treat. I, I think I, I saved it as a treat for getting through the pandemic. I didn't foresee the Delta variant coming. Mm. But I'm going to keep reading it. <laughs> so how big is this book? When you, oh, when you said oh. sweeping, that sounds big. It's big. I, I mean, I don't know how many pages. It's not in front of me right now. It's hundreds of pages. And it's not for everybody because like Tommy Orange's novel, They're There, there are a lot of characters mm. and they come in in the first section of the book, but then they each have their own chapters. And then everybody starts to meet in the 1980s all together. And you see how all these different stories and all of these different histories across decades and centuries figure into actually something that happened in Oregon. And that was, I think, the Earth Firsters defending the old growth trees against logging in the 1980s here. Hmm. I have heard of that book many times, and I guess I didn't really know what it was about, but it sounds fascinating. And I actually don't mind a book where there's characters that are in and out. I, I really enjoyed there there. That didn't bother me. But you're right. There are a lot of people who don't like that. Like that's very I, jarring for them. Again, I had to listen to the audiobook version of there there. I tried to read it. And I really wasn't comprehending. And the audio version is incredible. They've hired uh, several professional actors to do the different characters' voices. And I found it incredibly effective. And back to the overstory for just a minute, I really poo-pooed this novel when it first came out. I thought, why do I want to read a book about trees? I didn't understand. And, and then I picked it up and it knocked my socks off. There's well, a book it, that I read about trees recently. Now, it's more of a feel-good book, but it's called Harry's Trees. Have you ooh, read that? No. Harry's Trees by John Cohen. But it's about a man who trains as like a as a forester, but he's in a desk job. And so he never actually gets to be around the trees. And then there's a trauma in his life. And what he does just help heal himself as he goes to the trees. And then, you know, there's like a little love story and some things that go on, but it's a really good book. So if you like books about trees, you might want to try that one. I do. And do you know about Catherine Applegate's middle grade novel, Wish Tree? No. Oh, that's a good one. That was published in 2017. She's the author of The One and Only Ivan. It's one of my favorite books. I love One and Only Ivan. You're going to love Wish Tree. She's got her same droll sort of wit, but it's also a book about anti-immigration sentiment and racism, but it's also funny and yeah, that's a good one. We can do a whole show on books about trees. <laughs> we could. You're absolutely right. Well, I want to interject that the overstory is 512 pages, <gasps> which that's totally doable. If we get to like 800 pages, then I'm like, no, 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 no. But I can do 500 pages. Okay. That's, that's okay. It's worth it. All right. Well, Amy, are you reading a book about trees? That's what we're talking about. No, I'm not reading a book about trees, but I am reading a a book that's about nature and wildlife. And we're talking about middle grade and YA books today. And I thought about a book that you mentioned to me several years ago, Carrie, and you said it was a real tearjerker. And I don't, I don't always read tearjerkers. I don't often cry when I read a book. And I don't read a ton of middle grade books, but I have found that some of my favorite books in recent years have been middle grade books, like The One and Only Ivan. And I love The One and Only Bob as well. There's something about them that seems intense yet pure, pure in the sense of not jaded. And sometimes those books really touch me. So the book that I am going to talk about is Pax by Sarah Pennypacker. And Pax is the story of a boy named Peter who rescues an orphaned baby fox who he names Pax, and he raises it to adulthood. He and Pax have this bond, just like you would have with your pet, you know, your dog or your cat. But for the most part, Pax has been domesticated, but there's still a little bit of a wild fox inside of him. And Peter lives with his dad. And when his dad joins the military, Peter is sent to live with his grandfather. And on their way to the grandfather's house, his dad forces Peter to abandon Pax on the side of the road, which is just the worst scene ever. Peter takes Pax's favorite toy that he plays fetch with 
tosses it into the woods, and when Pax goes to retrieve it, Peter's father drives the car away. And so when Pax comes back, there's no one there. And he waits and he waits in the same spot for days for his boy to come back. So at this point, the book diverges into two points of view. You have Peter's point of view and Pax's point of view. Peter runs away from his grandfather's house to find his fox because he misses him so badly and feels so terribly about what he's done. And in the process, breaks his leg and is found by a woman who lives in the middle of nowhere who helps nurse him back to health so that he can continue his search for his fox. And then there's Pax, and Pax eventually has to leave the spot where he's been sitting waiting for Peter because he has to look for some food and water. And though he was terrified that he will miss finding his boy, that the boy is going to come back and he won't be there, he begins to branch out and he gradually joins this little group of other foxes. So in many ways, this is a coming of age novel. Peter realizes that he has to forge his own way and that he doesn't always agree with everything that his father does. And Pax comes to realize that he can't always trust humans. Pax and Peter also have to reevaluate how you define home. So when the woman who takes care of Peter and his leg out in the woods asks, so which is it? Are you going back for your home or for your pet? They're the same thing, Peter said. The mm. answer sudden and sure, although a surprise to him. Mm. So this book was definitely sad and there's no getting around that, but I loved it. It was written in 2016 and it was long listed for the National Book Award. And one of the reasons I wanted to mention it today was because there's a sequel coming out at the beginning of September that continues Pax's story. So maybe if you want to read this one before the next one comes out, that would be a great idea. And in the sequel, Pax is a father himself and is raising his own kids. There wow, you that awesome. sounds fantastic. That was a gut punch, though. I mean, I, I, it was a fantastic book, but I was like, oh, this is giving me all the feels. Mm. So, yeah, yeah, that's a really, so really good one. So good. Well, we are going to take a short break. And when we come back, Melissa, are you going to be ready to answer your three about me? Oh, absolutely. Awesome. We'll be back in a second. We are back with Melissa Hart, and she's going to answer her three about me. Question number one. You published an essay about your grandparents in the circus, which sounds so cool. So <laughs> what is the favorite story you've learned about them or your favorite pick of them that you discovered? Oh, that's great. Well, I got to grow up listening to my great-grandmother's stories about her time in the circus and vaudeville with my great-grandfather. She died when I was 30, so I got to hear these stories illustrated by hundreds of her photos for decades. But I didn't realize until just a few years ago that they were considered America's first flying family. My wow. great-grandparents had a biplane, and they traveled between vaudeville houses with my grandmother, who was then a young child. Hence, they were a flying family. My great-grandfather, this is something my great-grandma told me, he painted his stage name, Haphazard, on the wings of his plane. So whenever they flew into a new town, he'd roll the plane over and people on the ground below would be able to read his name. It was like oh. free advertising before <laughs> social media. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so they were vaudeville and they flew planes. Were uh -huh. they part of a particular circus? This is wild. In the early 1900s, each of them ran away separately to join Howe's Great London Circus. She was in Missouri. He was in San Jose, California. They met in this circus. They didn't particularly like each other, but they got married because vaudeville was sort of taking over entertainment dollars from the circus. And they kind of saw the writing on the wall and that they needed to develop a vaudeville act. Back then, it wasn't decent to travel unmarried as a couple. So they got married for the sake of their comedy juggling and tightrope walking act. And I don't think they ever really liked each other in all the decades they were married and performed together. Oh, wow. wow. It was really like a, a business transaction. Kind Very of. much so. Wow. So I have to ask, do you juggle and tightrope walk? Did that ability pass down? 
I can juggle if I practice. Like I, if we were on Zoom, I would not be able to juggle for you without a day of practice. Okay. But then I can. <laughs> but I am really good on the stilts. Very oh, good. Wow. <laughs> I have really good balance. Okay. <laughs> Question number two. In your memoir, Wild Within, there is a very memorable scene, which is the wedding between you and your husband. And the (laughs) wedding took place at the Raptor Rehabilitation Center, where you both volunteered for many years. So what is the craziest thing that happened at your wedding? We had a great horned owl, one of the resident raptors, as our ring bearer. And we tied our wedding rings on a ribbon around one of her legs. She sat on another trainer's glove beside us while Jonathan and I recited our very fast, personally written vows. And at one point in the ceremony, she snatched the rings off the ribbon with her beak and dropped them into the mud. It was spring. It had been raining. And we had to stop the ceremony so that the mothers who were dressed in wedding finery could get down on their hands and knees and scramble frantically to find the rings and clean them before we did the big exchange. Poor moms. Yes. But then there was another part of your wedding that I thought was super heartwarming, which was something that your husband surprised you with. Oh, it was actually the volunteers, the other volunteers. Oh, that's right. Sorry. Yes. No, no. So, you know, we, we had the homemade cake. It was lopsided, but it tasted delicious. And we had the the tossing of the bouquet, which I actually forgot during the ceremony and had to run to the car to get. We did all this. And then we thought we were done. We thought we were going to go party at the Mexican restaurant. But the volunteers, our other volunteers at the Raptor Center suddenly said, we have a surprise for you. And they had us stand at the edge of the Douglas firs. And they gave us the gift of releasing a red-tailed hawk that had been in our care for a while. So we stood surrounded by our guests and I had this hawk in my arms and it was wearing a little leather helmet to keep it calm. And so Jonathan got to take off the helmet really quickly and I got to toss this big hawk into the air and release it back into the wild. And it just should have been such a moment. And it was, but not the moment we were thinking because it circled and flew back toward the guests with its (laughs) talons outstretched. (laughs) And everybody screamed and ducked. And then it took off into a tree. So it was both heartwarming and hilarious, just the way I like it. (laughs) That's awesome. Oh, shoot. All right. Last question. So you have a rabbit and my family has a joke with me that I have Bundar. That's what we call it. It's like radar, except for wild rabbits. So we call it Bundar. So what is the best thing about your rabbit or what do you love about rabbits in general that might be different than a dog or a cat? Bundar. I like it. (laughs) I grew up with Beatrix Potter's Peter Rabbit books. I thought they were absolutely charming. And then I must have read and reread Watership Down about 15 times as a teenager. I think they're just fascinating. They're much more wild than a dog or a cat. And yet I had one when I was a kid and learned how to train it to play dead, which was very strange. And I was actually in 4-H for a time with this bunny. But this rabbit we have now, my daughter adopted it years ago. And we we went over to the local Humane Society. And I thought she'd want this cute little brown lop bundle of fur. And she said, no, I want this giant white red-eyed albino (laughs) rabbit that used to be a breeder bunny. The thing is enormous. It's larger than my dog. It's larger than all of our cats. Oh my gosh. She lives in our backyard with our five chickens. They all have a ton of space. They sleep together in the coop. And whenever I walk through their gate, she literally races across the yard to greet me. And it doesn't matter if I have a snack for her or not. She stands still and waits for me to bend down and scratch her nose. So the bunny and the chickens get along fine? It's the peaceable kingdom in my backyard. <laughs> it's it's amazing. Well, Carrie, there's you some bunny goals right I there. I know. That's right. <laughs> 
That's wow. awesome. Well, it has been so cool talking with you and learning about your interesting life and about your books. And I recommend that teachers get better with books because it is a great resource that I know that I'm going to use. So thank you again so much for taking time out of your day to talk with us. Oh, thank you. This was such a pleasure. And thanks for asking about my rabbit. You can find Melissa on Instagram at wildmelissahart or at her website at www.melissahart.com. Did you know you can find a list of all the books, podcasts, movies, and TV shows we talk about on our show? You don't need to have a pencil and paper sitting right next to you to write down all the titles you hear us mention. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. The show notes are also included on the description of the episode on your podcast player. We have a brand new updated website that has some great new features, including listener book recommendations and pictures of our guest pets. So come by and take a look. Thanks for joining us this week. Follow us on Facebook at the Perks of Being a Book Lover or on our Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover pod to see what we're up to. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org.